Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Dozens of countries not taking any chances over a coronavirus variant in the United Kingdom that's spreading rapidly. The B117 variant adds new complications to the worldwide battle against the pandemic, a bit of a game changer around the world. You've probably heard by now that there are a couple of new variants of the coronavirus circulating around the globe, and that's causing some concern among experts. One of them was first identified in the United Kingdom. That was back in mid-December. It's now been found in at least 35 countries, including the United States, where it's turned up in Colorado, California, Florida, Georgia, and New York. Truth is, it's probably a lot more widespread than that. Now, here's what's important. While this doesn't appear to make people who are infected sicker, studies have found that it does get transmitted from one person to another more easily. This does concern public health experts and government leaders. For example, in Europe, countries like the UK, Denmark, and Germany have already taken steps toward more restrictive lockdowns. And in other parts of the world, scientists are also keeping an eye on another variant one that was first identified in South Africa. Like the variant identified in the UK, this one also appears to make the virus more transmissible. So what do these new variants really mean for us here in the United States? How are they going to affect the course of the pandemic? And what can we all do to best protect ourselves? Here to talk with me about all of this is Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist with the Georgetown Center for Global Health, Science and Security. And she studies how the host, that's us, human beings, respond to emerging viruses. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. If you start with the basics, based on what we know right now, do you have some sense of just how widespread this is? Uh, you know, how many countries, how many states? Can, can we make those sorts of estimations based on the currently available data? So outside of the UK, not really. Um, we certainly know that I think it's been detected in, in multiple states in the U.S. But the, the real problem with this in the U.S. Uh, in particular is that compared to the UK, we do very little genomic surveillance. So we, we sequence very few of the viruses that are associated with new cases of COVID. So by comparison to the UK, which sequences about 10% of the, the new cases that they find, we only sequence about 0.3%. Given that it's been detected in multiple states and people with no history of international travel, I would guess that it's it's very prevalent in some communities around the U.S., but without that surveillance data, there's just no way of saying. With regard to genetic sequencing, do we do so little of this in the United States as compared to other countries because we, we, we don't think it's so important? I mean, is it important to be constantly sequencing them? And if so, why? 
So it is important to be constantly sequencing them. And for this virus in particular, it's going to be very important. And the reason why we need to do that is because of vaccines. For SARS coronavirus 2, the good news is that so far, um, it doesn't look like at least the UK variant is able to evade vaccine-induced immunity with the vaccines that we have now. But as more and more people are vaccinated, that could create what's called a selection pressure to basically push the evolution of virus variants that would be able to get around immunity produced by the vaccines. So it's going to be really important that we continue doing this type of sequencing to make sure that we aren't seeing variants emerge that that won't be affected by the vaccines. You talk about selective pressure from the vaccine on the virus. The virus may start to mutate uh, because there's this vaccine out there and it doesn't want to be vaccinated or, you know, have this, this thing working against it. But aside from that, when viruses mutate as they spread through populations, is it a random sort of event or are these viruses mutating in some particular direction? Basically, how mutation happens is that every time the virus copies its genome uh, or its genetic material, the enzyme that does that can make mistakes. And you can think of those as, as typos, effectively. Um, it will make a mistake, and those typos are, are random. So every time the, the virus copies its genome, which it does many times whenever it infects a cell, um, it has the, the possibility of inserting one or two of these spelling errors, effectively. Now, whether those spelling errors are preserved depends somewhat on whether or not they occur in a place in the genome that gives the virus some sort of advantage. An example of this would be a virus that um, can increase binding to the receptor, which is the, the molecule that a virus needs to bind to to get into a host cell and infect it. Sometimes it could be a mutation in the spike protein, um, which would allow it to evade uh, a particular antibody or a particular drug. So if, if a mutation causes that um, and gives the virus some sort of advantage, then we say that that virus, that mutation is under positive uh, evolutionary selection, meaning that that virus has a competitive advantage over other variants that are circulating and will eventually um, be selected for by that evolutionary pressure. So, so when you hear from British scientists um, that this variant uh, doesn't seem to be causing, isn't likely to cause more serious disease. Do you think that that will continue to be the case now if we, if we fast forward, you know, a few weeks, a few months from now? It does make sense to me. And I do think that will be the case. Um, that's not to say that I'm completely right about this. Um, we ultimately don't know. And because mutation itself is a random process, and evolutionary selection is influenced by many, many different variables. Um, I can't say for sure that we won't see more pathogenic variants emerging, um, but I, I do think that's probably less of a selection pressure than just transmission because the, the real reason why the pandemic is so deadly is because of the number of people that are infected. It's not because the virus itself is you know, a super pathogen. You know, it reminds me of this conversation I had with Larry Brilliant, who, who I'm sure you know, uh, who said something similar to what you said, which is that it's only really in Hollywood movies and the book Hot Zone, he added, where you see these stories of viruses progressively mutating into something that becomes increasingly lethal. 
I think you're sort of saying the same thing. We don't know for sure, obviously. Could it mutate into something that is deadlier, perhaps? But that doesn't seem to be the trajectory where this is where this is going. The, the the question that does come up a lot, as you as you mentioned, is is then the the uh, the ability for vaccines to still be effective if there are mutations occurring around the spike protein. One, as we're hearing from the UK, three potential of these mutations out of South Africa. Will the vaccine still work? Is it, is it a blunt enough tool for it to still have an effect? So this really, really depends on what those mutations are. Um, the beauty of our immune systems is that the responses are very um, multifaceted. You don't just make one antibody that targets the spike protein. You make many different antibodies that target the entire surface of the spike protein. So oftentimes a single mutation in spike is not going to be enough um, even if it stops one antibody from binding, it's not going to stop all of them from binding. But that said, um, sometimes you can either acquire enough mutations that it, it makes the spike protein uh, surface subtly different enough that it will block um, the binding of multiple antibodies. And that's when you start to see variants emerging that, that can uh, evade essentially the immune responses um, produced by either a vaccine or produced by a prior infection. This is something we're going to have to keep a very close eye on. You know, I, I think that uh, for, for a lot of people listening, four or five million have now received the vaccine. I think, you know, the question that they're, they're asking uh, is how likely is the vaccine that is currently being distributed, how, how likely is it for it to still be effective or as effective come, you know, a year from now or even by the fall of 2021? Do, do you think that it's likely that the vaccine will need to be modified? Like with a flu vaccine, you do get a different flu vaccine every year. I mean, do you anticipate with a coronavirus like this, based on the way it accumulates mutations and what you're describing, that that might be the same sort of scenario here as well? So that really depends on a couple of different things. Um, so right now, the good news is, is that unlike influenza, there's really only one strain of SARS coronavirus 2 that's circulating. There are many variants of that strain, but there's not, you know, H3N2. Um, it's, it's a very different virus from influenza. So we don't have a bunch of different viruses to choose from that we have to worry about making a vaccine against. Um, so that's good news. But the bad news is, is that if not enough people get these vaccines in a timely enough manner, or if this virus becomes endemic um, in the population of people who are not vaccinated, um, then we may be looking at a situation where we have to start getting annual um, or, or at least uh, new vaccines over a given interval of time. I, I want to come back to, to something that you mentioned about just overall um, transmissibility. Uh, what makes a virus more transmissible or more contagious um, and first of all, just the terms. Contagious is how likely something is to spread. Infectiousness is how what amount of the of the in this case the virus uh, would actually cause infection. Is is that right? Is that how you think about it? So we don't really know the mechanism by which these new variants are more transmissible, um, but it can be a number of things. So it could be that the the virus is binding its receptor more efficiently, or it's getting to places in the body where there are more cells that are susceptible to infection. It could be that people, something as simple as people are just shedding more virus, um, mm. which 
at least some of the preliminary data about viral loads in the UK variant suggests that might be the case. Um, it could be that once the virus actually gets in the cell, um, it has some sort of fitness advantage. So it can replicate to higher titers or it can evade the, the host immune system more effectively. I think part of the real challenge with this particular virus is how it is transmitted. So when it's becoming more transmissible, that doesn't mean that it's being transmitted by a different route. I think a lot of people think of that scene from the movie Outbreak um, where Dustin Hoffman looks up at the ceiling and sees the air vent and says it's gone airborne. Um, that's that's not the case. This virus is already transmitted by inhalation. It's a respiratory virus, so um, you get it by breathing it. You can get it by direct contact with uh, a respiratory droplet that contains virus, or you can potentially get it, although less efficiently, through fomites or um, contact with contaminated surfaces. Um, all of those are options. That's the, the same is true for all the other variants that are circulating. We just need to figure out why these variants um, are, are more likely to be transmitted by any of those potential routes. And, and, and just because something is thought of as not necessarily being as lethal, if it is more transmissible, that does seem to indicate that it could be more likely than transmitted to vulnerable populations. So while the virus itself is, is maybe not more lethal, it can lead to more death still just by virtue of the fact that it, you know, uh, could more likely infect these people who are at risk, right? Absolutely. And that's where we come back to the, the real problem with this pandemic. It's not because the case fatality rate is, is so astronomical. It's not because it's as lethal as SARS or MERS. It's because it's infecting so many people and it's higher than seasonal flu. So if you have more people getting infected and you have a more transmissible variant that's resulting in more infections, you're going to end up with more people in the hospital and more people dying. So it, it, it is a huge concern. And given that there is exponential growth um, through the population, uh, this, this can potentially mean hundreds of thousands of more deaths. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to, to wrap your, your mind around these numbers sometimes. You know, I just pause every time we talk about these numbers because I hope they don't just wash over people. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who have died and, and the hundreds of thousands more that you talk about are people who are presumably fine right now. I mean, they're not, they're not infected, they're not sick, but this will happen to them over the next, you know, few months. And, you know, I, I, I don't relish talking about that at all, but it is the truth. You know, you bring up this idea of Dustin Hoffman looking at the air vent and saying, okay, this thing's gone airborne. I remember that scene really well. And, it, it, you know, it was, it was supposed to be terrifying and it was. What, what can we say about this virus in terms of how it spreads? You mentioned that it's, it's obviously spreads through respiratory droplets. What does it mean for people in terms of how they protect themselves? This is what I always tell people. We don't need to worry about one form of transmission over another. We should worry about all of them. Um, and risk reduction is additive. So the more measures you can apply to reduce your exposure risk, the better off and safer you're going to be. The more of these types of uh, risk reduction measures you can implement, the better, because again, it is additive. So um, I always think about that. How many of these different things can I check off my list whenever I'm doing something like going to the grocery store. And I can't avoid other people outside my household then, but I can uh, make sure that I'm distanced from them. I can wear a mask. I can um, bring hand sanitizer with me. So just trying to implement as many of those measures as possible so that you can stay as safe as possible. I think if, if more people are, are being conscious of that, we could reduce community transmission without a so-called lockdown. You heard it straight from the virologist's mouth. 
keep doing the things we've been asked to do by health professionals and public health experts over and over again. Wear a mask, stay physically distanced from people not in your household, and wash your hands. Keeping the number of infections down is more important than ever, especially with these new, more transmissible variants now in the mix. Even though the arrival of vaccines gets us closer to the end of this pandemic, we still need to do our part to mitigate the damage until we get there. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.